Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Amen. Well, if you ever want to try something fun, uh, I suggest trying to have an important phone call, important phone conversation with a seven-month-old and a three-year-old in the back seat of the car. Uh, anybody ever try this? Anybody have young kids? You guys know it just, it just doesn't work. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, I was playing phone tag with another pastor and had some like, stuff I really wanted to connect with him about. He finally calls me, and it's like as I'm getting the kids into the car. And, uh, and so I'm like, oh, I got to take it. I decided to take it. And I'm listening to him. And uh, I don't know if you know this about seven-month-olds, but they don't like being buckled into their car seat. So like he's crying. And then my daughter, uh, who's three, I don't know if this is all three-year-olds or if it's just my daughter, but she doesn't like to not be part of the conversation. So like if two people are having a conversation and she's not there, she wants to insert herself. So I'm on the phone and she like, in the moment I'm like, start talking to this guy. Uh, she just, she has a thousand needs that she needs. And like each one she needs more passionately than the successive one. And when, you know, if I'm not responding in time, she, she just uses that only method she knows how. She just gets louder and louder and louder. So she's like screaming and my son is screaming and I'm trying to have this phone conversation. I'm just so grateful my wife isn't in the car at this time because my wife, Lindsay, if you guys have ever met her, Lindsay, she does life at a much lower volume than the rest of the Nauta household. She's from like the Southwest. She's soft-spoken, all of that. Like her mind would be melting the sheer volume that was going on in the car, and, uh, and it just got, it got so loud. I'm trying to have this, this phone conversation, and for the record, this is not my kid's fault. They were doing what three-year-olds and seven-months-old do, so, like, this is not me. Like, they were just doing their thing. This was on me. Like, I'm the one who made the decision to try and have this phone conversation, and, and here's, it doesn't matter how, how clear and articulate and concise my friend was as we were talking on the phone doesn't matter how, how clearly packaged the message was with that kind of background noise, there's no way for that message to come through. We're here and we're in this series that we call Don't Wait For It. Or sorry, don't wait. Wait for it. Wait for it. <laughs> Seeing if you're paying attention, you are. Good job. <laughs> Uh, in this series, wait for it. And we're going through uh, Romans 8, which is this one chapter in the book of Romans that just, it captures these amazing promises that God has for us. And some of these promises are, are for the future, things that we literally have to wait for. Others are promises for today, for right now that we get to live into. And they're these amazing promises. And they're so clear. The message is so clear, but I think sometimes there's, there's so much background noise in our hearts that the, the clarity of the message, it just, it can't get through over the noise that's in our hearts. Today we're gonna to be looking at what I think is one of the most heartwarming promises in all of scripture. It's an incredible promise and it, it's really good news. And it, it has really good news, but it also comes with a couple of hard truths. All right, so there's good news and there's hard truths. Can you say good news? Can you say hard truths? Hard truths, all right? And when we resist the hard truths, because they're packaged, they come together. When we resist the hard truths, I think it creates this, this noise in our hearts that actually drowns out the message of the good news. So we're in Romans 8, uh, and we're looking, starting at verse 14. And look what he says. He says, 
For those who are led, all right, hold on to this word led, just kind of keep that in your back pocket, we'll come back to that. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship. This is an incredible promise. It is incredibly good news that we have been adopted into sonship, adopted to be children of God. But I, I think some of the weight of this is lost a little bit on our generation because in the world today and even in Christian circles, it becomes sort of commonplace to assume that every human being, that our, our starting point is as a child of God. So we kind of talk about like, oh, we're all God's children, everyone's God's child. And we kind of think of ourselves just as being God's children. And while I, I think that kind of, it stems from Christianity, it kind of has its roots in Christianity, it's not entirely Christian. And I, I can tell you that 2,000 years ago when, when Paul is writing this, nobody, right, nobody 2,000 years ago looked around at the human race and said, oh, those people, they clearly, they are children of God or children of a God, or children of the gods. Like nobody, and no average person like on the street just kind of sat down and thought like, I, you know, I think I'm a child of God. Nobody had the audacity or the hubris to think I'm a child. You know, you know who did, all right? You know who thought they were a child of God? Caesar, all right? So maybe, maybe if you were the ruler of the known world and you were the most influential person alive in that day, maybe you would sit back and say, hmm, Clearly, I'm not like everybody else. Maybe I'm a child of God. Like Caesar thought that. You know who else thought that? You know who else talked about being a, a child of God? Jesus. He talked about being a son of God. And you know what they did for him having the audacity to claim that he's a son of God? You know what they did? They crucified him. Nobody, nobody in the world 2,000 years ago thought that the human race, we are all children of God. It was not on, on anybody's radar that now, Scripture says that we are created by God, so we're his creatures, and we're created in the image of God. So as human beings, we are created in God's image. There's something about us that sets us apart from the rest of creation. There's something about us that gives us indelible value. We are amazing creatures, but our starting place isn't children. In fact, the, the Scriptures say, and even earlier in Romans, it says that not only are we creatures, we are creatures who rejected the Creator. So by our own attitudes and actions and behaviors, we've rejected the creator. So we are creatures who've rejected the creator. And it goes so far in Romans 5, just a few chapters earlier, to say that, that we were enemies of God. That was our starting point. We were enemies of God. Not that God was our enemy per se, but that we set ourselves up as enemies against God. That's the starting point. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are by nature deserving of wrath. We kind of conjure up in our minds the, the image of the prodigal son. You know the parable of the prodigal son. It's this beautiful story that Jesus tells. And it's just a story. It's just an illustration of this, this wayward son who goes out and he squanders everything. And then he comes back to his father and he's willing to be a servant if he has to. But he comes back to his father and his father welcomes him with open arms and puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him. But you know what the father doesn't do? He doesn't adopt him because he didn't have to adopt him. He was already his son. But that's just a story. 
that Jesus tells to convey a point about the heart of the father. In fact, if you're familiar with the story, it's, it's a, in a package with two other parables about things being lost. The first one is about a lost sheep. The second one's about a lost coin. The third one's about a lost son and how the joy that the father has when he, he finds these things that are lost. That's what those parables are about. They're not telling us that you're by nature a sheep or by nature you're a coin, but it's also not saying that you by nature are a son or a daughter of God, that we are, we're his creatures, we're his creation. That's our starting point. And I was kind of going back and forth on whether I would even kind of belabor this, but I think it's important. I think it's important because I've, I've actually had conversations with Christians who were either, were either pulling away from God, pulling away from faith, or pulling away from the God of the Bible. So, so thoroughly redefining the what God is like and what he's going to do, just pulling it away from scripture because of a misunderstanding about this. Because the Bible is clear that, that there is judgment, that God will judge people. All right, we started this, this chapter, amazing promise. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but the assumption is that there are those who are not in Christ. So there is condemnation, that God will condemn certain people. And, and we think, wait, wait a minute, if everyone's a child of God, is God going to condemn his own children? And we think, I don't know if he could do that. Any parents in the room? Could you as a parent ever condemn your own child in the way that God says that he's going to condemn? I, I couldn't. I, I, don't, I mean, I don't think I could. So we start to say, well, if God is a loving father, there's no way that he could condemn his children. And then we start to say, well, if everyone's God's child, then surely God can't condemn. And we start to, to pull away from what the Bible teaches about God. And here's the truth that, that the Bible teaches is that God does not condemn any of his children. He does not condemn any of his children. But not everyone is by nature, well, none of us are by nature children of God. We are creatures who some of us, because of the Spirit's work in us, are adopted into his family. And for some of you in the room, you're like, yeah, that's really good news. And for others in the room, I recognize that you hear this, and it might sound super offensive for me to say, well, some people are children of God, and other people aren't. Like, I understand how arrogant and and calloused maybe, and even narrow-minded, that might seem. I do, and if, if you're in that place, before you reject this idea outright, I just I want to encourage you to consider a couple of things. First off, first off, consider the fact that when I say that like, I'm a child of God, and maybe somebody else is not a child of God, that is not me in any way declaring that I am superior to any other human being. I'm not a child of God because I'm superior to another human being. I'm a child of God because I recognize that I have nothing to offer. I am a creature who's rejected the creator and I am just desperately in my inadequacy, in my brokenness, clinging to a God who is so gracious and so generous that he would allow someone like me to be adopted into his family. It's not a a comment about superiority at all. But the second thing I want you to consider, if if this is kind of your mindset, is if you do believe that every human being is a child of God, just by nature, that we are all God's children, I want you to ask, where did that idea come from? Where did you get that from? Because I 
I imagine, I could be wrong, but I imagine it didn't come organically. Like it didn't come from you sitting down one day and looking out at the world and reading the news and looking about the people in your life and you said, wow, I see all these human beings. Clearly, they must be children of God, right? I imagine that's not what happened. I imagine if you believe that all human beings are by nature children of God, that somebody told you that. And I I can almost guarantee that someone told them that, and someone told them that, and someone told them that. And you could actually trace that all the way back to this, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came on the scene and said that, that everyone, everyone can become a child of God. This invitation is open to anyone can become a child of God. And somewhere over time that devolved into, oh, we are all children of God by nature. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It says that we can become children of God. This is what what John in his gospel, he says, he, he, Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, not to remain, not to go back to, but to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, so this isn't a natural thing, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. This is the invitation and all, all who receive him. And so, yes, it's only for those who receive him, but anybody can do it. And so if you're in that place and you're saying, I don't know if I want to believe in a God that's going to receive some and reject others, and I just, I plead with you. I plead with you, just because some people might reject the invitation to become children of God, just because some people might reject that invitation, please, please don't let that be the cause for you to reject this invitation. Because he went to great lengths to make this possible for you, that you might be adopted to sonship. That's really good news, adopted to sonship. And I just want to focus on this word sonship for, for just a moment. Because usually, this is the, the New International Translation. It's you know, brought into English through the NIV, we call it. And it, usually in the NIV, they're very careful about using gender-inclusive language. So usually it would say, brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. But the, the translators are very particular here, and they just leave it as sonship. And it's not because this is only written to men. Uh, we know that. Actually, at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, he mentions specific women by name, greeting them by name. Like, this is written to men and women, but he's saying for men and women, the invitation is to sonship, which, if you're a woman, might sound a little strange. But for some, for some of you women in the room, it might not sound that awful, because for some of you, you might come from a tradition or an experience where It's not the same thing to be a son and a daughter in a family. 2,000 years ago, sons and daughters were not treated the same in the family, especially in the Roman Empire. In fact, adoption was very common in the Roman Empire, especially among political elites, because only sons could be heirs. So Nero, who happened to be Caesar at the time when this was being written, he's like the most powerful man in the world, was adopted by his father Claudius, so that he could take over the helm. And why was Nero adopted? It wasn't because Claudius didn't have other children. He just didn't have a son. 
right? And his daughters couldn't take over the reign because in the, the ancient world, in that part of the world, daughters didn't have the same rights as sons. So he needed his son. So he adopted Nero. Nero gets to carry on the family name. And here's Paul in the, in the context of that saying that you... Men and women, boys and girls alike, get to be adopted into sonship. The full rights of sons. And for some of you, that's really good news. Because I know for some of you, you might have come from a background, a tradition, where, where sons were celebrated and daughters were tolerated. Or maybe even worse, you come from a place where sons were prized and, and daughters were discarded. And here's Paul saying, no, 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 not, not in God's house. Not in my house. That's what God's saying, no. Now he's saying, men and women, you're being adopted to sonship. The full rights of sons and heirs. He goes on in verse 17, right? We're adopted to sonship. Now, if we are children, he says, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. All of us who are in Christ, who are being led by the Spirit, are adopted into sonship, heirs of God, inheriting God's uh, position and status and fortune, and like all of that, and co-heirs with Christ. So everything that's true of Christ is now true of us. I knew a guy several years ago, and he's kind of a friend of a friend, but I got to know him a little bit. And he and his brother were, uh, they grew up in an orphanage in Africa. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him Evan it's not his name, but I'll call him Evan. Uh, and so Evan was, grew up with his brother in an orphanage in Africa. And when he was uh, probably kind of like a tweenager sometime in there, maybe a little earlier, uh, a very wealthy businessman passed through the orphanage. And to call him a very wealthy businessman was a little bit of an understatement. He was a billionaire with like a B, capital B billionaire. He, if I have the story correct, was touring that particular orphanage that day with his good friend Nelson Mandela, because uh, that's kind of how he rolled. Uh, so this very wealthy businessman comes to the orphanage, and he sees Evan and his brother, and they grip his heart, and he de- decides to adopt them. In a very short window of time, Evan goes from an orphanage in Africa to like an elite private prep school on the Upper East Side, I think. Like, he was in straight-up gossip girl domain at this point. All right, so orphanage in Africa, gossip girl, uh, and it was a little bit of an adjustment for him, going from one world to the other, and he didn't handle it great, and he had some behavioral issues, and we'd get in trouble from time to time, and one day I was hanging out with him and his dad, and his father uh, was explaining just the, you know, the antics that Evan got into when he was in high school, and how, like, every time Evan got in trouble, like, he had to open his checkbook and make another donation to the school so he wouldn't get expelled. And I jokingly asked, like, what it cost him to get Evan through high school. And, uh, you know, I didn't really expect an, a real answer. And he's just kind of leans back. And he's like, oh, I don't know, a couple million dollars. I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I tried to, like, keep my composure. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, play cool. Play cool. A uh, couple million dollars to, like, deal with his behavior, to just get him through, because he kept getting into trouble, and this is how he, he got him out. And, and here's the best part. He didn't even bat an eye. It didn't even phase him. You want to know why? It's because he had the resources, and this was his son. And that, right there, that's the situation that Paul is saying we've been invited into, right? We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ for his and that, I'm going to call that the objective reality of sonship, right? So that's the objective reality of sonship. It's just true whether you feel it or not, right? It's something that's declared over you. Your sons, your heirs, like all of this is true of you. But the promise gets even better. 
Because Paul doesn't say it's just a, an objective reality that's kind of out there, whether we experience it or not. No, no, he says there's a subjective element to this promise as well, where we actually get to feel the weight of being a child of God. We get to feel like we're children. There's something uh, about this experience that goes beyond the head into the heart, because right in between this and this dot, dot, dot here, this is what he says. So we have this adoption to sonship, and he says, by him, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, testi- Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So, right? so by him, we cry, all right, cry. Here, this word for cry, the commentators are quick to point out that this is, a, this is like a passionate cry. This is like a visceral, guttural cry. This isn't just like talking to God or kind of like reaching out like, hey, God, are you there? No, 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 this is, this is something passionate. And it, it can be like a, a cry of agony, like crying out in agony, but it doesn't have to be negative. It could also be positive. It could be a cry of adoration. The only thing it can't be is a dispassionate cry. Like what they're talking about here is something felt. It's emotive. And who do we cry to? It says we cry to Abba. This is a, a, an Aramaic Word. So if you're not familiar, this letter that Paul is writing, he's writing it in Koine Greek. But when he gets to this point, he leaves this word in Aramaic. And it's a word for, for father, but it's, not, it's, a, it's a more intimate term. It's a, an informal way of talking and addressing your father. It's not quite like daddy. It's not that kind of juvenile and kiddish. Maybe it's a little more like dad, right? Where there's relationship here. Where you, just, you say, it's, it's, my dad, like I don't, this is, this is the relationship. This is how I feel. I could just talk to him as dad. Saying that we, we get to cry out to our father, just like dad, with that sort of relationship. And then he takes it even further and he says that the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. So that the, the Holy Spirit is actually doing something inside where the, the spirit is testifying to our inner being in a way that it's not like testifying to our minds, but to our spirits and with our spirits saying, we're his, you're God's child. This is not simply something to know in our minds, but he's saying that part of the promise is that we're going to feel like his children. And sometimes this shows up in these like really outrageous, overwhelming moments where the, the spirit of God will just come on a person, on, on a Christian, and that Christian will fall to their knees and, and it'll bring tears to their eyes and it'll take their breath away and it'll just be... <sighs> words can't even express it. And maybe some of you have had an experience like that. Those experiences are great, but that happens sometimes to some people. But that's not 100% what... what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about something more normative. It's more of a, that still small voice. And I think you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about, that still small voice. And when you're in those moments and like life is chaotic and it's just like you're running around and then all of a sudden just kind of this wave of peace washes over you, even in the midst of it, it's just like, like, ah, oh yeah, I'm his. You just feel it. There's moments where you're here in worship and you're singing songs and there's a lyric that just kind of captures your attention. It reminds you about something about who God is and what he's done for you and who you are in him. And, and it just goes right from your head to your heart and you're just like, Oof, oh yeah, I'm his. You're reading scripture and you're going through and, and something just jumps out to you and something connects in a way that it's just not pieces fitting together in your mind, but you just feel it you're like, yeah, I'm his. 
or you're, you're out there serving in a ministry and you're serving alongside other people and you just, you're watching as the spirit is working through you and it's working through these other people and God is doing stuff and you just get this, this wave washing over you. are like, yeah, I'm, I'm his. And it's not just in your mind. You just kind of feel loved by God as a child of God in that moment. And, and I imagine that if you're a follower of Jesus, you know what I'm talking about, that you've had that experience. And I'm not saying that it happens all the time, like it's constant, but I'm, I do believe that it's regular in the life of the Christian, and I believe this is part of the promise. Part of the promise of sonship isn't simply the declaration that you're sons, but it is that subjective experience where you actually feel like you're sons and daughters of the living God. But it begs the question. Because I, I do believe that if you're a follower of Jesus, you probably have experienced this. But I know for some of you, for some of you, maybe you're like, yeah, I've experienced it, but it's been a long time. Yeah, I'm still here. And yes, I still believe the objective reality. I'm a son of God. But having that feeling that feeling of being a son or a daughter, it's been a long time since I felt that way. What happened to the promise? In fact, for some of you, maybe it's been such a long time since you've actually felt like a son or a daughter so long that even the memory of those past experiences, you start to question, wonder, like, was that even real? Is that something that can happen? Is that something for me? And that's what brings us to the hard truths. Because this is good news, but there are also these hard truths. And if we resist the hard truths, if we resist the hard truths, I think it interferes with our experience, the subjective experience of this promise of sonship. Because look what he says. He says, now for children, we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs of Christ, if... Right? That's a conditional statement. If... All right, we'll experience this. If what? If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If we share in his sufferings. This is the first hard truth is that suffering is guaranteed. Suffering is guaranteed. And I was thinking about this and I'm like, the conditional statement is if we suffer, if we share with Christ in his sufferings, but suffering isn't something you go out and do. It's not like you go out and be like, oh, I'm going to suffer today. No, suffering is something that happens to you, right? Suffering is something that comes along you, where something's ripped out from your hands apart from your will. Like you don't choose to suffer. Suffering just happens to you. Like you don't go out and choose to get a cold. No, the cold is something that happens to you, right? And suffering the same way is something that happens to us. Not only does, is suffering something that happens to us, suffering is something that happens to everyone, right? You know this. Everyone suffers. Everyone in this room will suffer. And please don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that everyone suffers equally. For some of you, the, the degree of suffering that you've experienced is on par with something I, could, I personally can't imagine and maybe most of the people in the room. And I'm not saying that just because everyone suffers, it, it evens out. No, I'm not saying that. But everyone does suffer. So what's the conditional statement here? So if suffering is something that happens to us and we're all gonna suffer anyway, then why is there this con conditional statement that if we share in Christ's suffering, we get to the experience of his children? And as I, I was thinking about it, I was, I was thinking about, even about my own experience of walking with Christ and experiencing suffering and pain and loss 
and times where maybe that pain was very acute and other times where it was just kind of that slow drip. But I recognized in my own experience and experiences so many others as followers of Christ, when we suffer, there can be a real temptation to suffer, but to do it without Christ. That in the midst of our suffering, we actually start to distance ourselves from God. Because there's this part of us that on some level feels like, God, if you loved me, you wouldn't be doing this. We disagree with our suffering. We feel like it's not warranted. We feel like it's unkind. And we, we start to say, whether we verbalize it or not, but on some level, we just feel like God shouldn't be allowing this suffering. And so we start to create this distance from God. And what it, what it starts to develop in us is resentment. And some of you know what I'm talking about, where the suffering in your life, whether it was very pronounced or a slow burn or whatever, causes resentment toward God that starts to develop in our hearts. And if you have ever dealt with bitterness or resentment, you probably know that the, the noise, the noise, the clamoring that resentment can cause in our hearts is way louder than a three-year-old and a baby in the backseat. <laughs> It's so loud that it's hard to hear anything over the noise of our resentment. It's hard for anything to get through to our hearts over the clamoring of that disappointment, that resentment, that bitterness, that spirit of grumbling and complaining. It's so loud that it has the, the, the volume to drown out the testimony of the spirit in our lives. I think he's still testifying that you're God's child, but I think the noise sometimes gets so loud. And resentment, the noise that it makes, it's a little bit like white noise. Anybody use like a sleep machine uh, to sleep at night? Uh, if you don't, you should try it. It's like, it's awesome. Uh, but with the white noise, what's great is it can actually be quite loud. It can be loud enough to drown out the other ambient noise so like you don't have things waking you up in the middle of the night. But because it's so steady and constant that you actually forget that it's even there. And I think this can work with resentment in our hearts that it can be so steady and constant that it gets louder and louder and louder and it's drowning out the testimony of the spirit, but we don't hear it. It's kind of that, that white noise in the background. This resentment. But suffering, suffering is not the only cause of resentment in the life of the Christian. There's another hard truth. We must be led. Right, going back to the beginning, I said, for those who are led by the Spirit of God, I told you, hold on to that. It's important. Commentators talk about this word led here, and they, they say that this is an aggressive term. This isn't like sort of like a passive leading or guiding. This isn't like God is some cosmic phone or friend. It's like, I don't know, should I choose A or B? Uh, it's not that kind of leadership. It's talking about being led in a very, like, not domineering way, but th this means that somebody else is the leader. Somebody else is calling the shots in your life. Anybody like to have someone else calling the shots in your life? Shockingly, no. Nobody wants to be led. Not in this way. You know, there's sometimes where we got God to lead us through things and we'll go to him for advice, but we don't want someone else calling the shots in our life. And, and our flesh kind of revolts against that. Uh, I was talking to somebody else about this earlier this week, and they told me about this clip that is perfect. I got away with everything under the last boss, and it wasn't good for me at all. So I want guidance. I want leadership. But don't just, like, boss me around, you know? Like, lead me. 
lead me when I'm in the mood to be led. Uh, and we laugh because it's comical, but at the same time, I think it's very easy for us to have that posture with God's leadership in our life where we say, yeah, I want, uh, lead me in the way I want to be led, where I want to be led, when I'm in the mood to be led. But that's not the kind of leadership that he's talking about here. I started to ask myself, he, he goes on, and when he talks about the spirit doesn't make us slaves and it makes us children, I was wondering, why does he even need to say that? Right? If we've received the Spirit and we're children, shouldn't we, wouldn't we just know that? Wouldn't we know we're not slaves? Wouldn't we feel that way? But of course, if you've been a child, then you know sometimes being a child and having a parent feels a lot like slavery. From the perspective of the child, it's very different from the perspective of the parent. Uh, my, uh, my son is homesick, uh, so my wife had to stay home with him, so my daughter is here with me this morning, and some of you might have caught after the worship. I had to pass her off so she could go to her class, and she did not want to go to her class today. And she was weeping. She was weeping. And in that moment, she didn't feel like a child. She probably felt like a slave. That breaks my heart, because that's, that's what she felt about me. There's, a couple weeks ago, she was... I was getting her to do something, and she didn't want to do it. And she said, why are you so mean to me? And she says, you're hurting my feelings. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, I laugh about it, but it, I don't like it. I don't want my daughter to feel that way about me. And I, I am, I'm actually genuinely doing the best thing for her in my leadership, but, but we don't like to be led. And sometimes being a child of God means being led by God in, in two places we don't want to go or away from things that we want to go to or in ways that we don't want to be led, and it might feel like slavery, even though it's sonship. And maybe you're in that place, maybe you're in that place where God is leading you away from something that is valuable to you, it's precious to you, something you don't want to give up. And maybe you're obedient, and you're saying, all right, I'm gonna be led, I'm gonna do it, God, you're God, you get to call the shots, you're kind of like going and you're kind of like grumbling along the way. It's kind of like the nation of Israel going through the wilderness. They're being led by God. He's leading them out of slavery. He's leading to the promised land and they can't stop complaining the whole time, right? They were the first ones who get to have this, this position of sonship and yet they're grumbling the whole time because God is leading them in a way that they don't want to be led. Or maybe for you, God is leading you away from a, a particular sin or habit or behavior or lifestyle and you're resisting it. You're just not, you just don't want to hear it. This thing is too valuable to you. It's too precious. I'm going to hold on to it. But now, now you go back and you're doing that thing that's so precious to you and you can't even enjoy it like you used to because there's that feeling of guilt because now you know you shouldn't be doing it and now you're just, and what does it build? Resentment. See, sometimes suffering can bring resentment. I think sometimes being led in ways we don't want to be led can bring Resentment and the noise of that can drown out the testimony of the Spirit in our lives. And if that's where you're at, if you're looking internally, I want to just give you a moment to just see, is there resentment in my heart? Do I feel that toward God? Maybe you haven't considered it. Maybe it's been kind of lurking there. But if that's you, I want to invite you to do something that's going to sound awful. Uh, it's going to sound like, wow, Trevor, you're just pouring salt in the wound. But I know of no other way, and neither does Scripture. So I want to invite you to repent. I invite you to repent. Actually come before God and, and own up to the resentment. Say, yes, it's there. 
yes, I've, I've complained, I've grumbled, I've felt this way about you. Acknowledge that because in the same way it breaks my heart to hear my daughter, it breaks the heart of God to do that. That's nothing, it's not a neutral thing. That's not an innocent thing to repent, to confess it, but then to trust him. Surrender to him. Because he loves you like nobody else. You can trust him. That word Abba, Paul left it in Aramaic because that was the spoken word language of Jesus. That was Jesus' language. And if there was anybody alive who actually was a son of God, there's only one true born like biological son of God, and that was Jesus. He was the only one who had the right to call God Abba. And maybe he did it a lot of times, I don't know, but there's only one moment, only one instance in the Gospels where we see Jesus call his father Abba. You know when that was? It's when he was in the garden, just before he went to the cross, and he got on his knees and he cried out to his Abba, Abba, if there's any other way, let this, let this cup pass from me. And he's sweating blood as he cries out, Abba, Abba, is there any other way? Let this cup pass from me. But if not, not my will, your will. He got up and he was led by his father into the most intense suffering anyone can imagine. He took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it down for you so that you could be a son in his kingdom. You can trust him. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.